Well, let's bow together. Let's seek God's face in prayer. We come around the word again today. May the Lord's help at uh, this time. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, we thank you that by your grace we have indeed been delivered from this present evil age. We thank you, Lord, that by your grace we've been given an insight and an interest in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that by your grace we saw our perfect substitute, the one and only Savior of sinners, and we confessed our sins over Christ, and you heard our confession. You heard our cry for mercy, and you're pleased. You answered our cries and showed us mercy for Christ's sake. We do indeed rest in the confidence that our sins are dealt with in Christ, in his person and in his work. We thank you for our mediator. We thank you for the one who is the surety of the better covenant. We thank you for that blood that cleanses from all sin. We rejoice, O God, that we are indeed a blessed and a privileged people. And we can have the confidence, the certain assurance that are at peace with God through Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, we know that in ourselves there are so many things that would condemn us. We see our own inconsistencies. We see our own hypocrisies. We know those times when we valued your word. And yet we thank you, Lord, that our confidence is in Christ Jesus. It's not in ourselves. It's in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect and only mediator between God and man. And we thank you, Lord, that we rest in him. And so we, as we would wrestle through these tragic circumstances in our world, we realize, O oh Lord, that it's only by your grace that we've been delivered from these things. That left to our own devices, we'd be guilty of the same confusion and the same chaotic thoughts. And we thank you, Lord, for delivering us from this. And for giving us an insight into the word of God. To realize uh, not only that the Bible is full of wisdom. But the Bible is the very wisdom of God. And you've shown us that, O oh God, and we rejoice in this. And we pray you'd help us to rest upon it. That we would not depend upon man's wisdom. Men are wise in their own sight. And dear Father, what a tragedy that is. And so may our wisdom be that which is grounded in the word of God. And so help us this morning. Give us clarity again as we think through some of these difficult circumstances. Give us grace and give us help, O Lord, as we, as we seek to discern your ways in all of these matters. We again pray for the, for the young folks meeting downstairs. We thank you for those who can be under the word. And bless again Karen and Wayne as they would teach the young people. And do bless our young people up here. For those who are with us over these weeks, we pray that their minds will be clear. They realize again that it is your word upon which we must stand. And so grant us all grace. We think of those again in our congregation who are laid aside, who cannot be here today. We think of the sickness that is, uh, again, through the, the congregation in different ways. We pray that you'd uh, soon give a good recovery to health and that very soon we'd all be back together in the house of God here. And so watch over us. Give us grace and wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, this morning, Isaiah 5. I'm just going to read some verses from verse number 20 of this fifth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. Again, we're coming back to the issue, the ethics of family life, uh, particularly as pertains to the unborn, the pre-born child. Uh, looking again at the, 
uh, circumstances around abortion in the nation at this time, and praying for God's wisdom. And again, a very relevant portion in light of that is Isaiah 50, or sorry, Isaiah 5 and the verse number 20. Isaiah 5 and the verse number 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Amen. May God again give us the wisdom to hear these woes and that we would not be guilty of the same in our own thinking and in our own understanding of the word. Last Lord's Day marked the 50th anniversary of the decision, often known as Roe versus Wade, the decision of the Supreme Court, which again uh, brought to some degree a, a decision that felt the state should legalize abortion in the first three months of pregnancy, known as the first trimester. And as we've thought about this, a matter of 50 years on, uh, 50 years on, we realize again that it is still the duty of the people of God to open our mouths for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. That's Proverbs chapter 31, verse number 8. And we have a responsibility to open our mouths for those who cannot speak for themselves. And the unborn child, of course, has no audible voice. And it is vital that those who know righteousness speak on their behalf, speaking for their rights, for their liberty, and indeed for their very lives. We are certainly living a time when there was the speaking of evil for good and good for evil. And 50 years on, these issues are still pertinent. The personhood of the unborn and the privacy of the mother. We noticed last time that in the decision of Roe v. Wade, privacy was again used as the argument uh, to really encompass a woman's freedom to decide whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Uh, she had individual autonomy and privacy, and that privacy, that autonomy was guarded in the U.S. Constitution. Of course, we're thankful that the Dobbs decision in recent times has shown the fallacy of such a logical inference. The issue, of course, of a woman's autonomy is, yes, there's a real right in terms of, of personal action, but it is not absolute. And again, we'll come back to this issue of choice in a few moments. The other thing they raised was the issue of the personhood of the fetus, the unborn. And again, they left that blank and open for speculation. We need not resolve, they said, the difficult question. It's not our position to speculate as to the answer. And so we see the importance again of asserting that in the Bible there is very clear, uh, very clear evidence for the personhood of the unborn as a living human person. I'm not going back over all that material today, but it is important to consider it. And again, it's online. Please go back and consider that material uh, from last Lord's Day if you're still unclear about some of those issues. But today I want to move on. I want to look uh, in some detail at uh, what we might term the pro-choice defense. Because there are various arguments that come from those who are defending what they call pro-choice. Of course, it is simply pro-abortion. And even the language of pro-choice is, again, a confusing language. 
But they have these various arguments that they present. And I want to look through four of them uh, today. Uh, first three uh, quite quickly. And then the fourth one in some more detail. First one is, well, this is an issue of freedom of choice. That the church or any individual has no right to impose their will upon the life of another. After all, pregnancy is life-changing. And to have a baby is going to change your life forevermore. And surely it's my decision what I do in such a circumstance. No court, no church can enforce me to go about my life as they dictate. Well, of course, freedom of choice is suddenly value. We do rejoice in the freedom to make our own personal decisions. But, of course, freedom of choice is not absolute. It is not unrestricted. Um, People should not be free to do those things which are against the law of God. There should be restrictions placed against such. Uh, There should be states, again, uh, within the language of our our constitution, uh, there should be that concept whereby the state will defend the vulnerable, that they will seek to preserve the life and the freedom of the vulnerable. You know, a, a, a group against religion has no right to come and block the roadway at our church. And they say, well, we have a right to sit here and to stand here. We're just gathering across this roadway, but no cars can get into our parking lots. We would expect to be able to call the police and say, they're blocking our right of worship. Move them on. And so, well, we have a right to assemble here. We have a right to just gather in this roadway. They say, well, no, you don't. There's restrictions. It's an obvious case, isn't it? There are restrictions regarding choice. And so there should be restrictions if someone says, I want to kill someone. That should be restricted. It should not be a right. And of course, the one they're seeking to kill is their own child. And the tragedy of defending that under freedom of choice is indeed, again, Isaiah 5, verse number 20, one to them that call evil good. Taking the goodness of personal autonomy, but using that to defend evil, is exactly what's dealt with in this particular text of Scripture. That's that one. The issue of rights. Again, this was the terminology that was used, again, probably somewhat later on in the pro-abortion lobby, there was this promotion of individual rights. They made it a rights issue. Of course, it was a hot topic in the U.S. in those days. But the strangeness of the language confused. They used this idea that a woman had the same right to be not pregnant as the man. That's a terminology used. And so, well... You men, you have the right to be not pregnant. We should have the same rights. You kind of scratch your head. It's not the same thing. Again, it opened up the door, doesn't it? To all manner of other gender confusion and all manner of things that are just so clearly against the word of God. But using rights certainly had an influence upon the libertarian culture. I'm not talking about those who are truly, properly conservative, but those who were libertarian and had the idea, well, yes, people should have the right to do as they please. And there should be these rights guarded. And of course, such is confusing. And that's the whole point, uh, that the pro-choice, the pro-abortion lobby has used confusing language to bring about their ends and calling evil good and good evil. Any comments on those two? I'm going to move on to another issue, but any comments on those two, you're all clear enough. They are clearly fallacious on the surface. They don't need much discussion. Dan? 
about their life and their living and their capacities? What about their, you know, abilities to live a life? Yeah, and so Dan's made the point there, again, for those who are watching on, listening in, that we follow the Bible before the Constitution, but the Constitution does talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so to defend one person's right to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that right does not allow that person to impinge upon the rights of another. Is that kind of what you're saying, Dan? So the unborn also has those same rights. And death, abortion, immediately denies them those rights. And so, again, it's the confusion of language here. And this is clearly unconstitutional. It is clearly unbiblical. It is clearly against conscience, clearly against any morality. It's clearly chaos and confusion in the present day. But yet people still propagate these arguments. We've got to think about them. Another issue that they raised was the issue of, of health care. This is the argument that was used for the necessity for abortion due to supposed harm to the mother. And they put abortion on the language of reproductive health. And of course, when they do that, they, you can see the devil at work. The devil at work. See, the Bible's ethic of health care, and there's a Bible ethic of health care, by the way, it is to help the needy and benefit the needy. But to do so lawfully and legally. Historically, again, you go back to traditional Western medicine, and the oath of the doctor was primum non necari, first do no harm. But now you were seeking to do harm to prevent harm as they saw it. But what happened then was, well, the issue, I'm going to come back to the health and the life of the mother, but the idea was, well, the mother's life is at harm, therefore abortion should be defended to save the mother's life. But that then opened the door, and the door blew wide open that anything that potentially harmed the mother's emotional health was then used as grounds for abortion. And so they used a, an unusual circumstance and used that to then defend abortion for essentially any reason at all. A woman simply had to say that to carry this baby to, to full term, deliver the baby, would harm her so much psychologically and emotionally, uh, therefore the abortion was defended. And you see how these things began degree upon degree. It's turning, of course, Christ's golden rule on its head. Think of, turn, turn to Matthew 7 just quickly, because this is one I, I would encourage you. If you're talking to someone about abortion, and you're having this debate and this discussion with them, so often in this liberal mindset, they value what's known as the golden rule of Christ Jesus. They, they defend this idea. They think, well, this is a good philosophy of life. But look what it says, Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would, you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And you go back to this kind of concept. You're taking a human life. Would you be glad for someone to take your life? That if they felt in some way you were harmful to them, and they argued this in a court this person is harmful to me. Their, their very presence harmed me psychologically. Therefore, they should die. Such is unthinkable, isn't it? And yet, they get the same argument towards the unborn. It's a tragic state of affairs altogether. But the fourth area is so I might term the difficult cases. Now, before I say them more, rare difficult cases should not be used to argue for a common practice. And yet this is the case. 
And so you'll have heard the discussions regarding some of the legislation that was being pushed in the States in November, and the argument often come, but what about? And they would describe a case that was incredibly unusual, incredibly rare, and they would use that to emotionally manipulate in such a way that they were then saying, therefore, we cannot legislate against abortion. And they'd use these difficult cases to make their case for abortion essentially on demand without any any possible explanation or defense. That's bad ethics. It's bad morality. Um, We should not ever uh, give sway to that. But that does not, doesn't suggest for a second that there are not these difficult cases. And I want to highlight three areas in which these are genuinely difficult cases. There is the issue of the mother's life. If the mother's life is truly at risk, what do we do in such a circumstance? Is abortion ever admissible? What about the situation of fetal abnormality? Particularly if that fetal abnormality is not consistent with life outside the womb. Again, there are some of those. And what about the issue of pregnancy due to sexual sin, incest, and rape? These are things that are often used. Again, how do we understand these things in the church today? Well, we'll take each of these one at a time. You have the issue about the mother's white life. Is it ever necessary to perform an abortion to save the mother's life? Well, the scenarios whereby the mother's life is in danger due to pregnancy are incredibly rare. And when they do occur, things like a pre-existing heart condition and the pregnancy puts so much stress upon the body that, again, the mother's life is in danger, they're incredibly rare. And ordinarily, they do not pose a risk until the very latest, latest stages in pregnancy. So if I can use the language of Roe v. We had the third trimester, the last third of pregnancy, when as the pregnancy develops, there's greater stress placed upon the mother's body. In such a state, is it permissible for an abortion to be carried out to save the mother's life? Well, I think that's putting the language the wrong way. What should happen in that case is the mother should be supported in her health as long as possible, seeking to deliver the child intact as late as possible. And so, yes, there's going to be judgment calls, but you may get a situation where a baby is delivered in a very premature state, in a time when their health is, is greatly endangered, but you're not aborting the child, you're delivering a live child and then seeking to give supportive care for that child in those early weeks of prematurity. And one of the mercies of God is that we have wonderful technology regarding neonatal intensive care now that allows premature babies to do very, very well, though they are marked by profound prematurity. And so this idea, well, it's okay to see the mother's life, it is, it is often used as, a, as some sort of red herring. One of the more difficult issues, again, has the complexity of a cancer diagnosis in the mother. Do you treat the mother's cancer? Do you seek to preserve her life? What is the impact upon the unborn? Again, this is a very, very complex area ethically. Thankfully, it is rare, but it does occur. But I know of circumstances where parents have made the decision, we will carry this child as long as possible. We will prolong any treatment as long as possible. And then, yes, if need be, deliver the child prematurely. But others have also made the call to pursue some degree of treatment of the cancer acknowledging there may be some risk to the unborn. And so these are areas that are very, very difficult, need a lot of compassion and care, and not profoundly hard lines of judgment. 
But again, they are rare. But I grant that they are, they are challenging circumstances. One of the things that a parent should understand in such a case is that if they pursue the treatment of the mother with cancer, their intent is to save life, not to harm life. And there is the ethical principle in medical ethics of intent. And so you may do something with the intent to show mercy or compassion. And there may be a subsequent harm caused, but your intent is mercy, not harm. The abortion lobby's intent is harm. Harm for the unborn. And so there are complexities ethically, but again, in, in traditional conservative Christian ethics, there was the understanding at times there may be an intent to save the life of the mother in some way that may inadvertently bring about harm. But that is not intending to harm or to kill the unborn child. And just remember, folks, if we find this in our congregation, we need to be so prayerful about the people in such a circumstance. The weight, the responsibility that they feel, the various ethical dilemmas. You can imagine a mother with perhaps four or five young children, and then it's expecting again, as a cancer diagnosis. Can you imagine the weight of responsibility in those decisions? In such a place, a church must be marked by great compassion and support in such a situation. But it absolutely does not defend the right for abortion on demand. It's a difficult case. We acknowledge difficulty, but we move on and say this is not a defense in what you're seeking to promote in society. There's also the issue, and this, again, causes trouble because it's quite common. It's, what known as, it's known as an ectopic pregnancy. It's a pregnancy that does not develop in the womb. It's an ex-utero or utero pregnancy, normally in the fallopian tubes outside the, the womb. It is not a viable pregnancy. And the difficulty is that if that develops inside the womb, it will indeed take the mother's life. Now, people will quote some very, very rare circumstances where somebody with a particular condition may have been able to sustain an ectopic pregnancy. That is almost never the case. And so at times, again, medically and ethically, it has been generally understood in Christian ethics that it is appropriate to remove an ectopic pregnancy as a means of saving the mother's life. And I'll say firsthand, I have admitted and seen ladies who were at death's door with ectopic pregnancies. It is a very, very real danger. One of the most scary things I saw in my practice was a lady with an ectopic pregnancy who was sent home during the day quite well and collapsed at the front door of the hospital later on that afternoon. And we just about got her through that circumstance, but not without very serious circumstances. Okay, so it's a real thing, and it is very, very difficult. I've mentioned in terms of Mars life, this matter, that in discussion that we should push the idea of premature delivery rather than abortion. That if there is a conflict in the mother's life, let's seek to bring about a, a premature delivery rather than to defend abortion. So these are difficult things. It's a mark of living in a fallen world. Sin has impacted our society, impacted our humanity, and we've got to realize that some of these things do occur. But they should not be used to defend uh, what is the pro-abortion movement. Any comments or questions on that one? Keep going. Okay. There is the issue of fetal abnormality. Now, this language has again been hijacked in many ways. What you're seeing here with the advent of ultrasound scans, you're seeing abnormalities being identified quite early in pregnancy now. I say now, is the last number of decades now. But you see these abnormalities are identified now. There's a spectrum of severity. You're going to have all various degrees. 
You know, there are some countries that tragically are taking the life of children with Down syndrome, which is, of course, a situation, a genetic, a genetic condition where the people with Down syndrome can live many, many years. But identified in the womb, and then those babies are terminated tragically. In the extreme end of things, you may get a condition such as anencephaly. Again, part of the brain that's, again, used for condition or cognition doesn't properly develop, and such will die very quickly after delivery. So there's a spectrum. There's a range in terms of severity of abnormalities. And again, one of the things that's happened is uh, they discuss this language as fatal fetal abnormality, but doctors are notoriously bad at determining what is fatal in these abnormalities. Children can live for several hours and days after birth. And so how do you determine what is a fatal, fatal abnormality? What is going to bring about definite death? So these are difficult things. We must, again, I encourage you, we must have pastoral compassion. For families who go through this scenario, this is an absolutely heartbreaking scenario. You've got to seek to bring them to an understanding of God's sovereignty over this world. Think of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's suffering was felt in the context of his family. And yet understood God's sovereignty over it all. And so you want to acknowledge this. This world is broken by the fall. You point to Christ in the power of the hope-giving gospel. That Christ has come to deliver this world from all of the tragedies of the fall. And a fetal abnormality is a consequence of sin in the world. So pastoral compassion should be the forefront of our consideration of this topic. It should not be a case of, this has happened, let's go for an abortion. Compassion. Because we should consider the problems with an abortion in such a case. You see, there are particular circumstances regarding such a pregnancy. What harm will the mother go through as a result of the abortion? An abortion in this circumstance is not an easy option. These pregnancies are often, again, I use this term in, in, in quotation marks, these are often wanted pregnancies. This is not the abortion of someone who, who decides, I don't want this pregnancy. Those often with a fatal abnormality, a fatal abnormality, they are often wanted pregnancies. And the abortion is often used late, aye, after about the 20-week scan. It's a late-term abortion. Bonds are formed. And to follow the devastating news of an abnormality with an abortion may compound, not alleviate, the physical and psychological trauma. And so to callously say you should have an abortion may make things a lot worse for that family, not in any way alleviate their suffering. So these are not things without complexity, but they are matters we should consider very, very carefully. Good, what we might term palliative care. So the child being brought to full term, then being delivered, good palliative care can allow the opportunity for the parents to hold, to see and to say goodbye to their little one. Hence, they can experience in the pain of their loss, which may in terms help in the resolution of their grief. Again, I had the circumstance of being in a neonatal unit when parents held their child as that child passed from this life into the next. That memory will always live with me. 
the horrors and the tragedy of that circumstance as sin's weight was felt in that hospital room. And your heart breaks for that family. But as they experience the pain of holding their loved one, their little one, as the little one passes from this time, you understand that at that time and in that experience, they are, they are gaining so much that will help them going forward. Even those moments will help them go forward in their grief. And so this idea that, well, an abortion will help such a circumstance is not accurate. It's not true. And it has not been proved to be the case in, in, actual, in actual reality. There's one other issue regarding this matter of fetal abnormality. And that is, what does such an abortion say about our view of disability? I've mentioned anencephaly. Severe form of spina bifida, part of the brain does not develop. Of those babies who are not aborted, less than half, but 45% survive birth. Almost all die within the first few hours or days after birth. It is genuinely a fatal abnormality. It is not still with life. It's devastating to all who are concerned. But... I can use this language, we should not see a baby with anencephaly as anencephalic, but as a profoundly disabled human being with a terminal illness. See, if you use that language, it changes everything. If you see this baby as a profoundly disabled human being with a terminal illness, it changes how you think about that individual child. You see, our definition of humanity must not be governed by disability. It should not be diminished by disability, by intellectual impairment, or indeed the time we have left to live. If such a baby is viewed as less than human, the implications of such inclusion are truly horrendous. You see, you get similar effects to anencephaly from trauma. Someone's in a road traffic accident and they damage severely part of their brain, or brain tumors or strokes, you get similar effects as you may see in anencephaly. Are such people less than human? Those with life-limiting terminal illnesses, they must be treated with compassion and dignity in the context of palliative care. Should not be a case of how quickly can we put them out of this world. An unborn child with anencephaly should be treated with profound dignity whatever their age, and they and the family should be afforded dignified compassion. Or society is calloused, marked by profound hardness of heart and conscience, that we would fail to see the value of humanity even in those with profound disability. That disability become a legalized reason for perpetrating a violent killing. That's a mark of a society that's lost its way altogether. Lost any set of dignity of the image of God and man. We must realize that humanity is true, even in the presence of manifold imperfections. But God's image is still seen, even in those individuals whose lives are broken by the effects of the fall. So fetal abnormality says more about society than it does about a defensive abortion. One last area. And that is again the tragedy of pregnancy due to sexual crime. Sin. 
Again, I remind people again, there is the need for pastoral compassion here. And what I'm going to say now is very similar to what I said regarding the fetal abnormality. Such an event happening is a reminder to us again that sin has a horrific impact upon this world. That wicked people do wicked things and their wickedness brings about consequence. But even such, there is the realization that God is sovereign even over the sins of the wicked. Think of Joseph's brothers. Think of those who crucified Christ. God is sovereign even over the wicked acts of wicked men. And again, you've got to point people to the fact that Christ has died to deliver this world from all the impacts of the fall. Again, we find ourselves asking the question, well, what does an abortion achieve in such a circumstance? It won't undo the sin. It can't reverse the crime. It can't reverse the horrific impacts of that crime in the life of an individual. And one thing is clear. Further sin will not undo the impacts of the first sin. And suffering from sin does not justify sin on our behalf. You may suffer from sin in in various ways in your life. People may have sinned against you, but that does not justify you then sinning to undo the effects of their sin. We do what's right, no matter how difficult the road may be. The way of righteousness is the way of bearing the cross at times. And it is not right to destroy a life to somehow seek to reverse the impact of sexual sin and sexual crime. It's always worth remembering. I don't say this in any way. I don't say this in any way heartlessly. The unborn child is not the perpetrator of the crime. There is no justice exercised by the death of the unborn in that crime. But what should happen in case of society in this iniquity is that there must be an effort in the behalf of society to bring the guilty to justice. That's what brings benefit to the victim. Human consciousness is such that we cry for justice, and when we're sinned against, we cry for justice against that sin. And therefore, there should be the effort in society to bring about justice. And sexual crimes are notoriously underpunished and underreported. And those who commit such crimes tragically get away with their wickedness. It's a mark again of a society that's lost its bearings altogether. Society, when we see the impact of such crime, society and the church must seek to bring about compassion and support to those who are suffering. So these are very, very serious matters. Are they really difficult cases? Yes, they are. And if somebody goes through such a circumstance, we shouldn't be harsh, callous, but seek to support them and help them as they make a decision that's for the glory of the Lord. Again, any final comments? Our time is really gone. Yes, yes.
Yeah, no, I th thank you. Yeah, so Stacey made a point. I think it's good, good to clarify this in terms of the, of the recording and this going forward. But when I refer to an abnormality in the womb, like a fetal abnormality, uh, I'm not suggesting for a second that is due to something personally in, this, in the life of the mother that she's caused this. When I say it's a consequence of sin, I'm referring to, to Genesis chapter 3. You know, sin is in the world and therefore the creation groans, which is kind of my last point. But in all of these things, we see creation groaning. And so referring, referring to sin in the breadth. And so, yes, the mother who's pregnant due to sexual crime, she's suffering the consequence of sin. Again, not a personal sin, but sin in the world. Because there's, there's sinful men in the world who will perpetrate such crimes. And so we're, we're listening in. We're, if you like, we're putting our ear to the ground of creation. And we're hearing creation groaning in all of these things, looking for the redemption. For that time when Christ comes and God wipes away all tears from their eyes. And so a Christian response to these things must be gospel. It must be to exalt the glory and the purpose of Christ. And as we will contest against our neighbors who are seeking to, to bring about all manner of iniquity, we contest their assertions. We must do so realizing that sin is real in this world. These are tragic circumstances. But Christ is the one who comes and makes all things new. And so that is our great hope and our great comfort in all of these uh, difficult circumstances. Yep, Sean. I don't remember what I said <laughs> in that context. Um, I referred to Down syndrome. Is that not, not that? Um, Anne and Kefali? Is that? Okay, sorry. Yeah, Anne, so Kefalic is your head. Okay, so Kefalic is a Greek word for head. Anne and Kefali is it's part of their brain that doesn't, doesn't uh, develop. Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's part of the spina bifida conditions. Um, and carefully is in that group of ideas it's an underdeveloped or an, a non-forming of part of the brain that's used for con cognition uh, and it's not compatible with life going forward so um, that's, the, that's, that's the when I refer to abnormalities I, I use those two extremes so Down syndrome because they, so there are lots of abnormalities you may have missing digits so you may scan and see there's, there's, there's a finger missing uh, part of the development some Usually a virus has infected the mother early pregnancy. There's something happens and they, they maybe have a, an abnormality of a finger missing or another digit or even an entire, uh, entire uh, limb. And so in that area, those, those abnormalities are absolutely compatible with life. Um, but again, some are advocating abortion for those. Down syndrome, again, you may get a, a, you know, a, essentially a, a functionally looking normal, and I use that term in quotation marks again, a child, but there's a genetic, def, a genetic defect. Well, again, there are many countries where there's almost no children with Down syndrome being born in the Western world, some of the Scandinavian countries. So you get a diagnosis of Down syndrome early on, abortion's the first action. And that's tragic. If you know children with Down syndrome, they're the most wonderful people that you can, you can possibly meet and interact with. And that they have, a, they have a productive, happy life, and we have absolutely no right to judge their future in, in, in such a state. It's terrible. But then, and carefully, is the other extreme. 
where again you really do have a situation that is, uh, that is not, it's not compatible with life going forward. So in that case, I'm saying that's a terminal illness. It's not a reason for abortion. It's a reason to bring about palliative care in a terminal condition. And so the child is born, and then there's great care given by the parents and the child in those early hours after birth. Very difficult. Those are really difficult situations. I mean, I'm not sure if that's where you're going, Sean, but that's... Thanks for all your help there. I wasn't sure where, where we were going. So. Oh, folks, we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our society. You need to discuss these things, and you just do so with a heavy heart. I want our young people to be kind of versed in these issues, that they understand what is righteous and what is proper in this world. They're getting so much information from the other side, bombarded with a pro-choice ideology. And so we need to pray for our young people, pray for our generation to come that will stand upon the word of the Lord and stand upon human dignity and compassion. You know, this is biblical, but it's also, it's also a mark of true humanity to value these things and take them very carefully. All right, let's pray and we'll seek God's face for his help. Heavenly Father, we do bring, we bring our society before thee in prayer. We realize, O oh Lord, that only the regenerating power of the Spirit of God can bring about change. And so we pray, O oh God, you change the hearts and the minds of so many. We ask, O oh God, that they would, again, desist from their wicked ways, that they would stop calling good evil and evil good. Oh, Lord, we pray you'd help us to make Christ known. Give us the grace to speak truth, speak righteousness, and help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.